Thanks for being with us. Hope you're having a good Monday so far. Coming up on the program today, we are going to talk more about the exposures and the one outbreak when we're talking about schools in the Fraser Health region. What we've learned so far from these different scenarios and what various groups are calling for in moving forward and keeping people safe. But we're also going to talk a little bit more about a topic that you might have just heard on the Mike Smith Show, the Neighbourhood Response Team. We were talking to Vancouver Police last week about this. They said they'd had more than 300 calls. Well, now there is a coalition of groups that wants that team shut down, and we'll get your take on that as well. But first, this has been leading the news, and as you've likely heard, three schools in the Fraser Health Authority are closing for two weeks. They are because of COVID-19. One, Cambridge Elementary declared as an outbreak, and then some other cases at two other schools, an elementary school and an independent school. Uh, They have seen various cases as well and are closing for that two-week period. Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Kathleen Ross, the president of Doctors of BC. Dr. Ross, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, What is your response when you hear about, uh, we knew this was a possibility, but when you hear that these schools have closed, and in particular the one school that has seen an outbreak? So Doctors of BC definitely supports all measures that that we can implement to reduce the chances of person-to-person spread. And so far in BC, the transmission within the school setting has been low. Uh, But obviously, you know, you had to look at these and and see how transmission occurred and where we can do better. So what would you like to see change? I think it's going to take a little bit of investigation from our public health officers to find out what, uh, what, if any, changes need to be implemented. Now, in the Fraser Health region, of course, we're seeing higher community transmission, uh, higher in Fraser Health than in other areas, and it may be that the the increased cases in the school in that area relates to increased cases in the community. Uh, In one of the cases, cases, uh, the case at Cambridge, and this isn't coming from the health authority, but certainly it is coming from people in the community, and in no way blaming the teacher involved, but the teacher who is now in hospital with complications from COVID-19 is a music teacher and was involved with many different divisions in the school. There was singing involved, and it seems like there was a lot of exposure. Is that something you think where maybe we need to tighten the restrictions or at least look at how many people are being exposed to each other in a case? like a music class. So I think this is really the beauty of contact tracing and understanding how clusters and outbreaks actually evolve because we have a better understanding following those investigations how the virus is moving from person to person and then we can make informed steps on how we can then mitigate the risks. Uh, There's also been a lot of talk at some of the schools in Surrey, and this this case, Cambridge, one of them as well, that a lot of these classes are still taking place in portables, so there isn't access, really easy access to running water as far as hand washing. Yes, there is hand sanitizer, but there isn't the the hand washing capability that's readily available to students and teachers at, at all times. Is that something you think we should also be looking at? Absolutely, and I think we need to try and lower the incidence by implementing all of those, um, all of those uh, public health measures, good hand, hand hygiene, washing your hands, maintaining that uh, distance, limiting our number of contacts, such as our class cohorts, and the utilization of masks when distancing can't be maintained where that's appropriate. Uh, and I think that this is, uh, these are all areas that we can learn from once we understand you know, how this uh, particular event evolved. Some people are calling on either an extended Christmas break or an early Christmas break or a two-week closure of schools to deal with this. Is that something that you would be supportive of? 
I think my, my preference would be that we try and keep the schools open because, you know, schools are not just the best place for learning. They're actually also the main social development environment for children, and learning in the home can be more challenging as parents try to balance work and home care and, and trying to support their children and their youth um, education in those settings can be challenging. And finally, does, is any of this a surprise? And I know we've been told from health officials that, that there would be exposures and we've seen exposures since schools reopened. Uh, I think it's the outbreak that is, is getting people uh, that, are, it is, that is more concerning for people. Uh, is any of what you're hearing about these cases and the outbreak a surprise? Given the fact that we've seen uh, larger numbers of cases in these communities um, in general, I'm not surprised that we're seeing uh, numbers increase in other settings, including school. But at the, at the same time, we need to understand how the transmission happens uh, and ensure that we take all our measures uh, and all of our steps individually and, and as a society to reduce the spread. All right, uh, Dr. Ross, we'll leave it there. I know you have a very busy day, so thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, my pleasure. Take care. Well, you've likely been hearing in the news, Cambridge Elementary is the school in Surrey that has been closed for two weeks. There have been at least seven confirmed cases of COVID-19 in that school, including at least one teacher who was hospitalized with the virus. And a lot of people are now questioning why there was what appears to be a gap between people learning about these cases and knowing there was a problem to having officials act and close down the school. Well, joining me on the line is Rani Sangara, who is the Cambridge Elementary School PAC president. Rani, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, because I first got an email from a parent who asked to remain anonymous on November 10th about this, saying, this is happening in our school. We're very concerned. Uh, she raised a lot of concern about the teacher. Do you know at this point to how the teacher is doing? The teacher is stable, but she's still in ICU. Which so we're is, hoping, we're praying that she pulls through and uh, and is is out of ICU soon. So that's all we can. That's all we know at this point. All right, and, and talk to me as the PAC president, as a, a parent with with students. Was there a lapse? Do you think in when the information started being known that there was a problem, and when health officials took action? We feel very relieved. First of all, our, uh, most of our parents feel very relieved that the school is closed now at this time. But that being said, we think it's um, a little bit too late. Uh, it should have been when you received your email from a parent. I know of several parents that emailed before that, a few days even before that, to the ministry and to Fraser Health asking for the school closure. Because this is our fifth exposure at, at our school. So, just before we had we got the exposure letter for Mrs. Lorenko, there was one sent out on Friday, and then we got one on Sunday. Um, and parents, some parents didn't even send their their kids to school that uh, last week because they were like, "Nope, it's not safe enough for them to be going." So, do you did you get the impression then, or from what you know then from from that information? Because we've been told time and time again that that exposure that there are exposures at schools, and we we are able to track on the the Fraser Health website the exposure list. But this is different when we're talking about transmission, and now it even says on the website an outbreak. Do do you think that there was evidence then that that you and other parents knew there was transmission before anything was done? Oh yes, yes. Um, there is a lot of parents concerned that, you know, we didn't know how many kids or teachers or staff are affected. Um, we have our own Cambridge uh, parent Facebook page, and uh, some parents 
felt that they could share on there and be transparent with us that I have it or my child has it, be aware. Um, And we didn't get any information from the school or Fraser Health. um, And, you know, we just started kind of piecing things together and parents were like, no, you know what, it's not safe to go. And we've been asking for the school to be closed before because, you know, we've been having exposures since October. And it just was like, you know what, you just need to close it for two weeks. Please do a deep clean. Uh, let us get a lid on this and, um, and, and then get back into it. And, and again, I'm not in any way uh, suggesting Mrs. Lorenko is to blame or did anything wrong. But does it seem strange to you that there was even, we, we all talked about going back to school, making sure it was safe and that protocols were in place to make sure students and teachers and parents and families were kept safe. Why Did it seem strange to you that there was a music teacher who was teaching all of these divisions, uh, crossing cohorts, and from what I understand, singing and, and without a mask policy? Uh, yes, very concerned. I mean, we we well, first of all, she shouldn't have never been put in that position. We love her dearly. The kids love her dearly, and we know that she would have never done anything to put them in any ways of any harm. Um, and she's following the protocols that are put in place. But it's not really fair that one music teacher is seeing kids from kindergarten all the way to grade four in a portable, um, and and be responsible to teach music to all those kids. You know, maybe they should have looked at, maybe she could have done a Zoom mm-hmm. into their classroom or something different. And of course, hindsight is twenty twenty at this point. But, you know, it's, it's, the cohorts aren't working because the cohorts are in the classroom, but when they're out um, in the playground, they're all playing together. They're also going to library. So there's that one, one librarian now that is looking um, at students that are from kindergarten, again, up to grade five. So there's a lot of, you know, things that need to be looked at. And many parents feel that closing the school for two weeks is just not enough. They feel that, you know, the health and safety plan needs to be reviewed. It needs to be updated. Um, they feel that masks need to be mandatory. They, they feel that, you know, the cleaning has to be better. Um, cohorts have to be properly managed so that maybe have staggered lunch hours so that kids can go out to play at different times maybe have you know and 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 have parents wear masks when they drop off their their children in the morning and will pick up they also feel that the playground should be closed before and after school so you know once you you get out of school you go straight home so there's no playing and there's no interacting with anybody else because at this point, if the school goes through the two-week closure, then how comfortable are parents going to be sending their kids back if those things, if any of those things aren't changed? Again, I think most parents will be very fearful because this can happen again. And, you know, our school is very big. We have, it's one of the biggest elementary schools in Surrey. So we have about seven, 750 or so students registered, about 200, 240 are doing online, but the rest of the kids are at school. So what is working for one school isn't necessarily going to be working for another school. So a school that only has 150 children or, you know, 300 children is going to be different than ours. And I, and I feel that parents won't be comfortable sending their, their kids back to school if nothing has changed, if class sizes aren't smaller or if cohorts aren't looked at properly or masks aren't being made mandatory, outside breaks, you know, to be staggered. Um, so there's a lot of different things, I think, in those two weeks that um, Fraser Health or the ministry have to be looking at.
Uh, in the meantime, the letter that has gone out to the, the community, the Cambridge Elementary School community, says that it's requiring all staff and students, uh, anybody who has been on site between November 2nd and the 13th to self-isolate for 14 days uh, from the last date to anybody was there. That's got to be a lot of people who are now at home self-isolating. Yeah, and it's a lot of people that, you know, I mean, it was like 850 staff and students, but then you include their parents or you're including grandparents. Um, Because, you know, in Surrey, around this area, we do have um, households that live in multi-generation households. So, I mean, and then you start thinking, well, some of these students are not showing any symptoms. And we know of a case where um, the the student himself was not showing any symptoms, but his mom got it. Um, so that's another worry that we have. And I think that worry has been around for a while, and that's why we wanted the school closures um, to, for our school to be closed. I mean, I understand that most parents don't want all schools closed, and, and we understand that because, you know, I think, but we also feel that every school should be looked at on an individual basis. In this in this case, too, and I know for the Surrey School District, the superintendent, Jordan Tinney, has been actually praised for communication and for making himself available and for getting the information out there. So what do you think broke down or where did that communication chain break down in this case? I think, you know, for most parents and myself, sometimes we have a hard, hard time understanding what's going on behind the scenes. Like we don't know, you know, it's a cluster, if it's an outbreak or it's just an exposure. Um so and and we want more transparency, but then we find out that if if people find out that oh it's this class or if this person has it, then there's you know bullying and and shaming. But I think we all have to take responsibility and say, you know what, yeah, we do. If, if we want transparency, and if if we want any of that, that that needs to stop first of all. Um, and I'm not really sure where the breakdown happened. I think it's just you know they need to fall follow protocol. So whatever the ministry has put in, Fraser Health has put in, then the superintendents and the principals. So it's just a lot of layers that I guess everyone is trying to go through and trying to do the right thing. And, and you know, again, people start saying, oh, it's fear-mongering, but it's really not. It's just, you know, unless you're at that school and your child is affected, you don't really know how, how it is because, you know, we've been on pins and needles all week or a couple of weeks just wanting to have the school closed. So I think that there was a breakdown of communication there. There was, they didn't move fast enough and just say, you know what, looking at Cambridge, let's get into into this, see where it's coming from. It took many, many, many emails from parents, phone calls. um, And it's just, it, it shouldn't be like that. Like parents shouldn't have to worry to that point of sending their child to school. Uh, well, uh, Rani Sangara, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, I know uh, that both the health minister and uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry will be asked about this uh, at their briefing and uh, hopefully some answers for parents and, and people like yourself. Thank you so much, though, for taking the time to be with us today. I appreciate it. We thank you as a community for Cambridge that you guys have um, been working on this. And thank you again for having me. We have been talking a lot about what's happening in schools in BC, particularly in the Fraser Health Authority, where there are now three schools closed, two because of COVID-19 exposures and staffing issues. One, Cambridge Elementary closed because of an outbreak. And I'm sure we are going to hear more on that from the health minister and our public, our provincial health officer during their three o'clock briefing today. Education Minister Rob Fleming is actually going to be answering questions about this in this hour as well. And we'll bring you 
some of that just as soon as it's available. We wanted to take a look, though, at a recent poll, and this has asked parents to score the school system, whether it's education, how, uh, sorry, communication, how education is being provided in person versus remote. Now, keep in mind, this survey was done before the updates on those schools this past weekend, but we still wanted to take a look at some of the findings. Steve Mossop joins us now, president of Insights West, to talk a bit more about this. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. So what did you ask parents? Well, the hypothesis was when we went into this poll was to look at, uh, you know, there's a lot of media reports and social media that was pretty hard on the current situation in the classroom. And we wanted to see what the results were. So we we found that actually the results are pretty positive overall. We've got 70% of parents who are saying that the the school system right now and the provincial government is doing a good job in having their kids in the classroom. And was this throughout the province or were there some areas where it was a little different? It is throughout the province, but, you know, in, interestingly, the, the ratings are highest in Metro Vancouver and the city of Vancouver. And I was a bit surprised to see this. Uh, the results in the rest of BC and Vancouver Island were actually lower. Hmm. You asked things like uh, the communication, uh, providing clear instructions on protocols and rules, cleaning protocols. Uh, did those all get good, good, good um, feedback or get good, good marks coming back? There are some differences, and we ask people to rate not only the province of BC, but the individual uh, children's school. And we found that enforcing distancing rules and undertaking cleaning protocols were the highest rated uh, of the five dimensions that we covered. Uh, The lowest rated were enforcement of wearing masks uh, at 55% for the schools and communication with parents about infections and outbreaks at 66%. So those two areas, you know, still the majority of parents, but not uh, not the 70% level that we're seeing in the other uh, areas. And this kind of comes on the tails as well as another poll, and that talked about mandatory mask wearing in schools. Uh, my guess is if we're looking at health authorities, uh, we might see an uptick in the number of people calling for that in the Fraser Health Authority. Uh, but what kind of response have you been getting about that idea of mandatory masks? You know, we've been pulling that throughout the pandemic, and the, the rates uh, of approval on that are super high. Like, we have 84% approval ratings for... Uh, mandatory mask wearing in high schools, and it's no different for middle schools, it's 83%. So, you know, living in the province of BC to have anybody agree to 85% on any issue is really quite phenomenal. So I'm a little bit puzzled uh, why we haven't instituted a mandatory mask wearing uh, law when, when, in fact, the majority of British Columbians are clamoring for that. It does seem odd, and we've uh, even the mayor of Surrey came out today uh, being a little bit cryptic, saying he thinks that we're awfully close to having a mandatory mask in that city. Uh, yeah, it does seem strange that something that people are continually calling for, and, and there's not really, there hasn't been movement there. Uh, what else did you find about how parents are feeling? And again, this done before the latest uh, news of the outbreak at Cambridge and Surrey and the, the closure of a couple of other schools. What other kind of, when you take the pulse of parents, what else are you finding? Well, we asked this question back in September. We asked it again, is what's the preference for in-person versus remote learning? And we found that uh, the preference for in-person learning did increase from about 25% to 45% currently. So it's still less than the majority. Uh, 41% feel that the mix of online and in-person is preferred. And there's still a fairly large number, almost 20% of parents who prefer 100% remote learning. So one in five parents across BC would prefer to have their kids at home. 
Hmm. And and did you ask what their feelings were on what was available and what was being offered as far as the the idea of being in the classroom or being able to do the learning uh, distance-wise? Well, we did find that the satisfaction levels are higher with those who prefer an in-person situation. So naturally, that makes sense. Those who prefer to have their kids at home are really the, the parents who aren't entirely happy. Um, so, but it, what, what struck me is that, you know, I think the Minister of Education said this way back in September, said we're not going to please everybody. And here we are two months later, and we got the same result as we pulled back in September on this. And, and I would wonder if you were to do this poll again, uh, if we see exposures up, if we see transmission happening in schools, I would, I would guess that there might be a difference in uh, what you're getting back from parents if you were to ask them the same questions. I think so. But remember, there are there have been a couple of school closures, even private schools. But I think parents expect and understand that that could hit them any day. And certainly if it's in your backyard, you're you're going to be a little bit less than satisfied with uh, the school system, I'm sure. And did you ask people about distancing or about how distancing is being how that's even possible in schools? We did ask about uh, social distancing. Um, Let me just find it here. Uh, wearing masks and uh, see the social distancing scores are a little bit different when you look at the province versus school. So 70% are giving good grades to the province of BC and giving the rules around that. Uh, but in practicality, uh, how parents rate their kids' schools is, is quite a bit lower at 55%. So just a, a bare majority think that the enforcement of those social distancing rules is going well. Hmm. I thought I found it interesting too when you asked people about communication when it comes to outbreaks or I, I suppose exposures because there seems to be a bit of a disconnect out there too with parents. Uh, there's a parent who has a Facebook page that's been putting all of the outbreak notices or the exposure notices on there, and, and some parents, even parents that have been calling in here, saying that they feel like they're getting more information there than they're getting from officials, and they're finding that a bit frustrating. I think so. You look at the ratings where. Uh where they say only 19% are doing a very good job in this area. 19% of schools are doing a very good job. Um, and then two-thirds are doing either a good job or a very good job. It's, it's um, you know, at least 35% or 34% who are not happy. And as part of that, too, when you're asking people, uh, keeping in mind that you're asking parents to weigh in and to, to answer questions on something uh, that even in the in the title of this that over two months into the school year, which still isn't a very long period of time, we're talking about a very different looking school year, uh, the parents are being asked to weigh in on something that's completely new. They are, and and the story is changing by the day. But I just found it quite surprising that uh, even though the infection rate is rising, hospitalizations are rising, the actual satisfaction level is higher than what it was back in September. By by not a small margin, it went from 58% support to 70% currently. So Parents do give credit for the province for doing uh, many things right in this pandemic. Did anything else stick out as surprising to you when you looked at these findings? Well, just the geography. Uh, it really struck me as odd because the lowest infection rate, I believe, is Anchor Island area. And yet this is a group that's less satisfied than the rest of the province. And I'm not sure why that would be. Hmm. Well, interesting findings, definitely. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about it today. Thank you, Jill. 
Well, you likely heard in the news a second experimental COVID-19 vaccine. This one from the company Moderna has shown some pretty strong early results. Earlier today, we learned that the vaccine appears to be 94.5% effective. That's according to the preliminary data. And it doesn't need to be kept in that extremely cold temperature. That was one of the concerns about the vaccine that was talked about last week by competitor Pfizer. That vaccine looking to be about 90% effective. So what does this all mean? Let's bring in Dr. Horatio Back, UBC adjunct professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Hello, thank you for the invitation. When we hear this, what appears to be good news, another vaccine, this one has an effective rate that slightly higher than the Pfizer, it doesn't need to be kept in those super cold temperatures. What's your response to that? Uh, well, common call, I would like to uh, mention about the the effectivity. So we need to understand that the group that was analyzed is a very, very small group. So you're talking about 50 or 100 uh, people that contracted the disease, and some of them were covered and some of them were not uh, covered by the vaccine. So um, if you if, if, if you change, basically, you add to the uh, uh, dose that they were sick, but the vaccine didn't do anything for two or three more patients, your percentage will go down very fast because the number of the people in this study is very, very low. We still need to wait a long way, unfortunately, to see what are the effectivities long term and other topics. Regarding to the temperature, definitely it's great because the Pfizer probably will face a huge problem about the distribution because you have to build all this uh, deep freezing um, infrastructure to transport that. It's including from airplanes, point of distributions, pharmacies, and so on. Uh, in this case, the one that was published uh, from Moderna, basically, as you mentioned, is you don't need deep freezing. Freezing is on, you have to keep the vaccine at minus 20 degrees, that is Celsius, sorry, that is the temperature of every a freezer that you have in your house or restaurants or pharmacies and so on. So uh, also what they mentioned that you can keep the vaccine at that temperature for up to six months. Say you move the dose to room, uh, sorry, to refrigeration that is between four to eight degrees, you still can keep the vaccine active for 30 days. And in case you take from the refrigerator and supposedly you need to vaccinate 10 people, but only eight came, so you can still keep the vaccine for 12 hours outside of the fridge and still is viable. Which all sounds very promising and, and seems like a very good, good uh, productive uh, that, that we've got to this point already. Uh, realistically, though, we know these are being fast-tracked. What does this say about when a vaccine might even start being uh, made available for frontline workers for the most vulnerable? Yes, so um, I think that will be relatively fast. First, they need to get approval from the FDA, that is, uh, you know, the the organ, the institution in U.S. that is approving all these type of uh, uh, vaccines. And uh, I think that is going to be fast track, so probably not a long time, probably one month, I guess, let's say in one month, and the first doses will start to be produced. Now, remember that everyone needs to get two uh, doses, basically. So it's not only one. So if you produce 50 million doses, it's for only 25 million people. 
my understanding that the first uh, group of people that we receive will be uh, healthcare providers and can be also frontline workers like uh, police, firefighters, all those that they are exposed at a high risk. And I understand that probably they will start with people um, 65 plus because that is a very high uh, risk population. I guess it, it, we, it, if it's approved fast by the FDA that I do believe, uh, probably uh, early next year we can start to, I mean, the company will start to produce, but I don't think we'll expect to get the vaccine so fast here because probably in U.S., they need to provide first. Right. My, my guess, I don't know what is the contract that was signed by the government, from, by the Canadian government, but probably um, we will take early next year probably we can receive some of them. Is there any concern of Health Canada, like you said, once it gets FDA approval, does Health Canada then step in and say, well, wait a minute, we need to make sure it's, uh, we, we've done our testing as well, or is this a scenario where Health Canada could say, okay, if other countries and other organizations have okayed this, we don't have to go through our own rigorous testing? Um, I don't think about all the testing, but definitely they will need to analyze the data. Uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, everything is according to our uh, system. Um, definitely, uh, it's, again, preliminary data, and we don't know what will happen in one year. So we don't know the, uh, how long the antibodies that will be, you know, produced as a result of the exposure to the vaccine will last. We know that some patients, uh, not so many patients after they recover from the disease, I mean, in natural way, uh, the antibodies are fading after four to six months. So we don't know if the vaccine will keep longer. I would expect that we want to have at least one year, at least as we get the flu vaccine every year. At least, you know, makes sense. You don't want to get two shots every three or four months, definitely. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, soon we will get a, a battle, basically, of companies that they are starting to bring more and more information to the to the market of vaccine because, you know, it's a competence and I expect we have many, many and, you know, 90 to 95 percent is not a big difference at this point because the small number of people that they were analyzed. Uh, definitely after one or two years, that is the time to make sure if it's safe or not, when you will see in the long term, if some uh, issues appear, or, you know, with, with these people, uh, it will come later. But uh, definitely for, as I say, people in high risk, definitely they can give uh, this vaccine. And when you talked about, too, the fact that both of these vaccines require the two shots and with that uh, several-week period between them, uh, does that mean, do you generally, from a vaccine, do you get any coverage from that first shot, or is it not until you get the second shot that it's really effective? Yeah, so the first shot, basically, is uh, your system will recover. I mean, uh, what what they use, basically, is what we call RNA-based vaccine, RNA is a piece of nucleic acid that is used by cells to produce proteins. Now, it's a messenger basically that is coming from the nucleus where we have the DNA. I don't want to, to, to give more details here. So basically what you do, this vaccine, uh, this uh, nucleic acid will go inside the cell and they will start to produce the protein. Once the protein is released, so the immune system will recognize as a foreign uh, protein and will start to make the antibodies. The fe- between the first week up to 10 days of the first injection, you have, a, a, let's say, an early pro- um, antibodies that start to be produced. And after two week, 10 days to two weeks, it shifts to the long-term antibodies. That's the reason you need to do 
to vaccination because the first one is like a prime in the system, but they don't last for a long time. Then they will be changed to the long term that that is the one you want to cover uh, to protect your body for a long term, basically. That's the reason you need to put two in this case. All right. And just one final question. You mentioned that it's an RNA-based vaccine. Are there any concerns that that's a newer way of doing vaccines and that people are going to be uh, questioning that more or people might not be have as much buy-in if there's concerns about that? A great question. And the, if, if approved, that will be either Pfizer or Moderna. Any vaccine that is based in RNA will be the first vaccine to be approved because that is a new technology. We didn't use the, 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 the normal or the traditional way to produce vaccine. And what they mentioned is they didn't see any side effects. And the, probably the RNA, once it's arriving to the cells and is uh, converted to a protein, is chopped, basically destroyed by the cell. So um, that will be over time, but you know, theoretically don't expect a big problem related to that. But we don't know. Again, it's very early, and we need to wait. That's a, that, that's a point. But yeah, the only thing they, they um, publish is that, like, you know, like a regular vaccine when you get, you may have like a, a pain in the area. Some people develop very low percentage, 2%, 3%. They develop kind of a, 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 a headache or a fatigue. That is classical for a vaccine when they are injected. So it's not something that, you know, that is no severe uh, problem. All right. Uh, Dr. Bach, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk more about this. I appreciate it. Thank you very much and stay safe. Well, as you likely know, in BC right now, there are restrictions in place for people in the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority and the Fraser Health Authority, a ban on social gatherings and a recommendation not to travel in and out of the health authorities unless it's essential. People being asked to do this for a two-week period to try and break the transmission of COVID-19. But there is a group of doctors as well saying that perhaps what's needed is a more aggressive strategy to get the number of cases down to zero. And joining me on the line to talk more about that is Dr. Michael Warner, physician of the critical care division at the Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What do you think needs to be done as far as, as we see the cases raise, rise in many provinces, what do, what do you think needs to be done? So, you know, without boots on the ground in, in BC, I'm not completely sure what's going on there, although I'm, I'm reading about it. I'd say that what the COVID zero philosophy is, is, is to aim for uh, zero cases and zero transmission. Let's make that the goal. That is in contrast to what we see many governments doing, which is kind of a balanced approach. Let's keep businesses going to some degree, some degree of economic activity, a tolerable, tolerable level of COVID activity, and hope that it works out. But what we're seeing in the second wave is that COVID always wins, especially uh, in certain health regions. I think the Fraser Health region in, in, in your area is particularly affected. But if we target zero cases and zero transmission, if we invest in and deploy a world-class test, trace, isolate support system, making that our number one infrastructure project, and then support all those negatively impacted by the pursuit of eliminating COVID. That means people who will become socially isolated, businesses that will be destroyed, uh, people who will lose their job. If we make those three principles, targeting zero, investing in public health, and supporting those negatively impacted, 
and make that our goal, it's much more likely that we will achieve it or at least come close to achieve it as opposed to this balancing act, which clearly hasn't worked. And, and this is an evidence-based approach because we've seen other countries, other jurisdictions try what COVID-0 is proposing and end up successful in terms of avoiding sequential lockdowns and keeping the levels of COVID activity relatively low and allowing for sustainable economic recovery. Uh, and, and when you say other countries, what would you use in as, as an example or where they've done something similar to that where it's worked? So the most recent example, uh, which had, albeit a very draconian uh, lockdown, would be the, you know, the territory of Victoria in Australia, in the city of Melbourne specifically, which is somewhat similar in size to the greater Toronto area, uh, where they had you know, COVID running rampant. And now as cases come up, as each case come, comes up, they're able to identify that case, not cases, but case, and have public health measures implemented right away to take care of that case and economic activity is resuming to a significant degree. There are other countries like Vietnam, Taiwan, South Korea, New Zealand, where you know, things are basically back to normal. We have a geographic problem that we're adjacent to the United States, and, and that is important, but the border is relatively closed, closed except for you know, people tr- flying and, and commercial traffic, and, and I don't think it's gonna be reopened uh, in the foreseeable future. So we do have an opportunity. So it's setting a goal, and, as opposed to what we're doing now, which I think is, at least in Ontario, we're not really sure what the government's trying to do. And it's been similar here in in BC as well. When we saw that first lockdown, when restaurants were closed, everything but but uh, takeout, and we saw businesses closed, uh, services, gyms all closed, and we did get to a point here where on those daily briefings it was single digit cases, and it seemed like I think people were patting themselves on the back and thinking that what we had done had worked. So was it too short sighted to do that and then reopen? Well, I think what it shows is that it's achievable, which I think is important because people are tired. People in Ontario are tired. I'm sure in BC, they're worn out. You know, everywhere outside the Atlantic bubble is in big trouble with COVID. So it can be done. And then well, you have to make sure that, you know, during that summer of opportunity, that adequate investments are made in public health. That's been a challenge in Ontario where we're not even doing contact tracing in Toronto because it's so overwhelmed. They're not even doing it outside of congruent settings. So we need to invest in the infrastructure so that that system is robust, so they're not using antiquated technology, so they have enough people doing the contact tracing, that people understand the advice in multiple languages, um, so they know what they're supposed to do. Uh, I'm not sure whether BC is able to shore those things up or has them shored up, but Ontario, we need to. And if that is in place, then perhaps we can have a sustainable reopening afterwards with school open and with businesses instead of functioning at 30 percent, functioning at 80 or 90 percent for a long period of time instead of one or two months at a time. How long do you think it would have to if we took that drastic measure or those drastic measures for how long would they have to be in place to really break the chain? Well, I think it depends where you're starting from uh, and what your goals are. So. People have talked about the circuit breaker. I think the chief medical officer of health of Manitoba mentioned that. So that's two weeks. That's clearly not enough. You know, that's, that's one cycle of infection. I'm not an epidemiologist or an infectious disease doctor. I'm an ICU doctor. But it's, I think it's going to be you know, a couple of months, perhaps longer, of some type of significant reduction in interactions among people. That means reduction in economic activity with the adequate support for people who are going to get hurt badly by that. And 
make the investment in public health the biggest biggest project in Canada and perhaps have the federal government step in because COVID is going to be with us for a long time. The vaccine, although there's been encouraging press releases, is not ready for prime time. Nothing is Health Canada approved and we're not ready to distribute anything. So we are going to be with COVID for a long time. And I think it's a worthwhile investment to make sure public health infrastructure is there for us. What do you say then to, to some of the responses to that would be, but what about the the downfall and the damage that is caused when you shut down business, when you stop letting visitors go to long-term care, when you shut down schools, that if you weigh the downfall of that, when you na- weigh the negative side of that, it could be worse than the virus itself? Those are all really important points. Let's just keep in mind, I've never said that schools should be shut down or that visitors should be uh, banned from long-term care homes. Uh, but I would say that, you know, this isn't my decision or doctor's decisions. I think what we're doing at COVID-0 is pre- pre- presenting the public with an alternative approach. And let's have the public decide. If the public feels that a balanced approach with some degree of economic activity and COVID, you know, somewhat out of control is the way forward, then that's what politicians should do. They should listen to the public. If the public says, let's try something different because what we've done so far hasn't worked, then that's what politicians should do. They shouldn't listen to me or listen to you. They should listen to general public sentiment. We're just providing people with a different perspective that we feel is evidence-based. Right, but I think people are more open to listening to health officials and doctors and people that are in the healthcare system because the whole time we've been told that what we want to do is bend that curve down so we don't overwhelm hospitals and that we don't get to a place where somebody goes to get help and they can't get it because the hospital's full. Uh, to, to, to go to this COVID zero is a bit of a different mindset. Well, I think what you're saying is that the doctors have some domain expertise when it comes to healthcare, and not just doctors, but nurses, other healthcare workers. I definitely feel that. And in Ontario, we've really hit a brick wall with respect to our advocacy, where um, you know the premier listens to the chief medical officer of health, with, and the chief medical officer of health has a view that seems to be completely different from many frontline physicians. I'm not sure if it's similar in BC or, or, or different. We feel that we have something we can bring to the table to uh, provide advice, but our advice has not been heeded to. We'll be there to save people, but we are concerned, just like I'm sure doctors in Surrey, Fraser Valley Health System are concerned about having limited IC capacity, limited hospital capacity, shutting down non-COVID-related health care if you're waiting for hip replacement, knee replacement, cancer surgery, MRI, etc. I mean, that has severe health consequences, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, and that's why we think the COVID-0 approach would help keep the healthcare system open for all important non-COVID-related care, which you really can't shut down because the collateral damage to people who don't have COVID but still have healthcare needs is you know, just as significant as the person who loses their business because of COVID-19. We have to, we have to think about everybody. Uh, for sure, we, we do. Uh, just one more question. Do you think we're focused too much on, on doing what we're doing now in hopes that we're going to get a vaccine sooner rather than later? Well, I, I think that people will be excited by the vaccine um, news, but these are press releases. Uh, like I said, until something's health canon approved, let's just talk with the Pfizer vaccine. So, you know, in 2021, the most doses they will make is 1.3 billion doses. It's a two-dose regimen. 650 million people can get vaccinated. But, fi- but 70% of the world's population needs to be vaccinated. That's 5.6 billion people for there to be some type of immunity. The Pfizer vaccine has to be kept at minus 70 degrees Celsius. That means... We need airplanes that can fly you know, vaccines at that temperature. That infrastructure doesn't yet exist. The federal government is working on that. The Moderna vaccine can be kept at minus 20. That's, that's useful. But again, the safety studies haven't been done. So I don't want to take people's hope away because these vaccines are coming. 
but they're not coming anytime soon, and they can't replace the need to follow what the, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry says and other health officials in the province. All right. We'll leave it there. Dr. Warner, thanks so much. I really appreciate